Welcome to TopCast and to episode 165. This is part five on my discussion of Popper's lecture on the sources of knowledge and of ignorance, which is basically about how we know and how it is we make mistakes, especially in light of everyone else's misconceived ideas about how this happens, especially today. And when I say especially today, the people especially today who talk about how it is that we know or we learn and how it is that we end up making mistakes, especially if they try and take seriously this notion of how it is that we come to knowledge and yet also simultaneously end up making errors along the way, when they take it seriously, they go wrong because they think that we're able to get to certain knowledge. And if we're able to get to certain knowledge, how on earth do we go about making mistakes along the way? Anyone who's not a Papirium or comes from that sort of stance seems to think that our mind is infected in some way with unholy demons of a sort. Okay, so they don't necessarily call it unholy demons, but they might think that we've got some genetic predisposition towards certain wrong ideas, or that we're not paying sufficient attention. Popper has a different way of looking at these things. And he's taking a historical view here of where our present modern understandings of these things are coming from, especially his perspective, the perspective he is providing, the idea that we are conjecturing, guessing our way to better and better knowledge, and along the way, criticising our ideas in order to refine the ideas we do have into something that more accurately represents what reality is like, or at least by our own lights as a better explanation of what's going on in the world. He's already talked about the empiricists in the British tradition, and the rationalists in the continental European tradition. And he's saying that both of these schools of philosophy have great virtue in them. They were a relief from authority. They're a relief from deferring to either the holy book as having all of the knowledge, or as the priest or the prophet or the emperor or the king being able to, by decree, say what the truth of the matter happened to be. In both cases, they were arguing for a more individual way of constructing knowledge, saying that individual people could rely upon their senses and their minds in order to sift a little bit of truth from all of the misconception that was out there. Now, they happen to think that you could really get to some sort of final truth. Uh, that was an error, okay? And that was an appeal to a kind of authority of the senses and reason. So we're going to get more into that today and to see what Popper has to say about these historic views of knowledge and he's getting to what the more correct view of knowledge is now. This is part 11 of the lecture. And in part 11, Popper says, quote, Bacon and Descartes set up observation and reason as new authorities and they set them up within each individual man. But in doing so, they split man into two parts into a higher part which had authority with respect to truth, Bacon's observations, Descartes' intellect, and the lower part. It is this lower part which constitutes our ordinary selves, the old Adam in us. For it is always we ourselves who are alone responsible for error, if truth is manifest. It is we, with our prejudices, our negligence, our pig-headedness, who are to blame. It is we ourselves who are the sources of our ignorance. Okay, end quote there. 
What's Popper saying? Well, he's saying there that Bacon and Descartes believed in this idea of having observations and intellect, respectively. Bacon was an empiricist. Descartes was a rationalist. And they're both representing here schools of thought from their respective cultures, their respective traditions in philosophy. Okay, Bacon from the British tradition, Descartes from the continental European tradition. They're both saying that these are authoritative sources of knowledge. So we need somewhere to put the blame, so to speak, for where the errors come from. And what they're saying is that, well, it's the human being. The human being's mind makes errors, which I would agree with. However, they're setting up authorities. They're saying that there nonetheless is this divine authority, this perfect, pristine way of getting at the certain truth, which is wrong, which is incorrect. There is no such source. All of them, all of these ways of getting channels of information which we can decode in some way to find out something about the structure of reality by constructing knowledge, all of them are error-prone. The way in which our senses work is error-prone itself. Okay, I've talked about this before and I won't go over it again, but the way in which the light we receive from, for example, the sun reflecting off the leaves of trees is interpreted by our minds. And that chain of causation which allows us to think we are perceiving a particular thing is itself prone to going wrong, as is our reason. Reason, even if applied in the most rigorous manner, by carefully thinking and so on and so forth, can lead us astray. Things can go wrong. It is not perfect. It itself is a form of knowledge which is fallible. It's conjectural. Everything at every single point is fallible, is error-prone. The only thing that does not contain errors is reality itself, which our mind is conjuring a virtual reality rendering of. We do not directly perceive reality. Reality is out there without its contradictions. Reality is out there perfect in a sense. In a sense, it is the thing that we construct our imperfect knowledge of. Imperfect knowledge of what? Of everything else that exists in physical reality and even abstract reality. But what Popper's trying to say here is it's not all our fault. We're putting in the greatest effort we can at times through science and history and every other way in which we want to construct objective knowledge about the world. But even if... We were putting our effort in to the absolute limits of what a human is capable of. That will not eliminate the errors because there is no perfect source of truth. There is no way of simply extracting knowledge from reality. We have to bring our ideas to reality. We create knowledge in our minds of the external reality. We're not deriving it from external reality which is why it doesn't matter if external reality contains no errors in some sense. We can't extract that perfect knowledge from that reality because the only way of us being able to interface, so to speak, with reality is via these channels of information, both our senses and the deployment of our reason, which are both subject to error. Let's keep going. Popper goes on to say, quote, Thus we are split into a human part. We ourselves the part which is the source of our fallible opinions, doxa, of our errors and of our ignorance, and a superhuman part, such as the senses or the intellect, the part which is the source of real knowledge, episteme, and which has an almost divine authority over us. But this will not do. For we know that Descartes' physics, admirable as it was in many ways, 
was mistaken. Yet it was based only upon ideas which he thought were clear and distinct, and which therefore should have been true. And that the senses were not reliable either, and thus had no authority, was well known to the ancients. For example, to Heraclitus and Parmenides and Democritus and Plato, though hardly known to Epicurus. It is strange that this teaching of antiquity could almost be ignored by modern empiricists, including phenomenalists and positivists. Yet it is ignored by most of the problems posed by positivists and phenomenalists, and in the solutions they offer. The reason is this. They still believe that it is not our senses that err, but it is always we ourselves who err in our interpretation of what is given to us by our senses. Our senses tell the truth, but we may err. For example, when we try to put into language, conventional, man-made, imperfect language, what they tell us. It is our linguistic description which is faulty because it may be tinged with prejudice, end quote. So there's much to comment on there, but I'll just leave it at one particular thing that might be hanging over us more obviously than the rest. Where Popper says of the positivists and the phenomenalists, they think that our senses tell the truth. In what sense do our senses tell the truth? What does this even mean? When we look at, I don't know, any star and we see that it's white, are our senses telling us the truth? Is the star really white? What does that mean? What is white? What is light? How on earth can our senses be delivering us perfect information of what a star is when in fact the light looked at closely enough using special instrumentation which is an addition to our senses and perhaps even requires technology like computers in order to break up into the different wavelengths will be revealed that there is no such thing strictly speaking as white light there is no wavelength corresponding to white it is the combination of all the different wavelengths of light that constitute a rainbow put those together red orange yellow green blue indigo violet and then you'll get white. And even then, that's misleading because there is no discrete red light. There's a whole bunch of wavelengths, which would count as red, by the way. And so we can divide up that spectrum all the way from red in the visible through to violet in the visible into literally thousands of different discrete wavelengths of light, possibly more than that. But you won't get that from your senses. However carefully you apply your senses, your senses cannot provide you with that information. The human eye is simply incapable of being able to see white light as the rainbow, except under certain circumstances, like specifically a rainbow. But even then, you're not really getting the truth of the matter about what light consists of. And that's just light. Never mind it reflecting off per certain things. This is the very substance, so to speak, speaking of light as a substance, that allows us to observe most everything else with our eyes. We can only see other stuff when the light reflects off it. But light itself, the very thing that is allowing us to see, is itself a complex entity out there in the world that needs to be understood before you really know what's going on when you see the green leaves, when you see the blue sky, when you see the brown koala's fur. All of that, saying that, saying that anything has a particular colour, depends upon some deeper understanding of light. Truth be told, if we want to talk about what colour things are from a scientific perspective. So it simply isn't the case that our senses tell the truth. It's wrong. It's misconceived. 
Our senses are channels of information, which need to be interpreted. And by the way, the channel of information itself can be filled with error, can be incomplete, cannot convey the truth of the matter. <laughs> like I just said with the star. What color is a star? <laughs> is it really white? Well, it appears to be white. But what does it mean to say that something is white like a star? It's not that simple. A star might very well be better described as all the colors of the rainbow, which when combined and interpreted by a human eye appears to be white. But appearing is not the same as being. These are different things. And I'm not merely splitting hairs. This applies to anything of interest in science and anything of interest to people just broadly speaking. There is so much that is hidden from our eyes altogether and hidden from our senses altogether. No careful use of the senses in telling us the truth when we look at the sky will ever give us the information that there exist these things called pulsars or black holes or galaxies more distant than the Andromeda galaxy because none of those things can be seen with the senses. We need something else or in a more mundane way. If our senses are telling us the truth, what does tinnitus tell us? Tinnitus is this condition that some people have, almost everyone has from time to time, of the ringing in the ears. Well, okay, the senses are telling us about a sound that isn't actually there. This is something to do with the cilia inside your ears bent over for some reason and vibrating. Or it could be something like just a misfiring of what's going on in the mind. So you're getting this sensation, something from the senses, that doesn't exist. So the senses are not telling us the truth at all. They're giving us information, which needs to be interpreted, and sometimes on reflection of that interpretation, we realise it's a complete and utter error. And we can discount what the senses are saying. The senses are misleading us. And in fact, that's a better way to describe what's going on. That the senses are misleading channels of information. And we somehow or other need to correct the errors in the misconceptions that the senses would otherwise lead us to in order that we get something better in terms of more reliable knowledge about the world. The senses alone won't do it. What Popper has also said there is that, well, then there were attempts by philosophers to say that, well, if the senses are telling us the truth, where things are going wrong is us trying to say in words, to put into language what the senses are telling us. And when we do that, that process of putting things into words, ah, that's what goes wrong. And as Popper goes on to say, quote, so our man-made language was at fault. But then it was discovered that our language too was given to us in an important sense, that it embodied the wisdom and experience of many generations and that it should not be blamed if we misused it. So language too became a truthful authority that could never deceive us. If we fall into temptation and use language in vain, then it is we who are to blame for the trouble that ensues for language is a jealous God and will not hold him guiltless that taketh his words in vain, but will throw him into darkness and confusion, end quote. So Popper is making a, a deal of language here. And for one reason is that he is responding to his peers at this time, the time of writing this, the time of delivering this lecture. He was swimming amongst other philosophers who were very focused on linguistic analysis and have ever since, by the way, have been ever since. This is the Wittgensteinian school of a form of logical positivism that reduced all problems in philosophy to simply puzzles of language. And so he's saying there that those 
linguistic philosophers, they're saying, well, you know, language is pristine. It can perfectly well capture what we mean by our statements in reality. So again, the only possible source of error is in us misinterpreting what the language is actually about. You have to get to the final definitions of things and properly understanding those final definitions will give you the truth. Okay, so again, it's only your fault, okay? It's all to do with the fallible human being. So they had something right there, okay? They did have this idea that people made errors. What they got wrong was that there were infallible sources of knowledge. And of course, this also leads to the idea that mistakes might not be made by the right kind of person. If you're the right kind of person with the right philosophical training, let's say, then you understand what language is all about. You understand what the words really mean. You understand that the senses are not going to deceive us and are going to give us the truth. You are the conduit to truth. You are the authority on wisdom and knowledge. <sighs> Something that Popper, of course, disagrees with entirely. And it's interesting that philosophers tend to converge in that direction. It's frightening at times. They speak as if, well, you need this class of people who are going to interpret reality for you the philosopher king, who is going to be the authority, the authoritative source themselves on understanding language, understanding reality, and being able to tell you what the truth is, because they're not subject to error in the same way as the rest of you. Don't you get it? They're the educated people, and they're the people who are able to see reality as it is and, in, and get to the truth of the matter. Okay, so they might not talk in exactly that way, but it underpins the philosophy they have. In a sense, it's self-serving. It might not be consciously self-serving, uh, but it's at least there, implicit in their ideas and the way in which they've constructed their philosophy. Popper goes on, quote, By blaming us and our language or misuse of language, it is possible to uphold the divine authority of the senses and even of language but it is possible only at the cost of widening the gap between this authority and ourselves, between the pure sources from which we can obtain an authoritative knowledge of the truthful goddess nature and our impure, guilty selves, between God and man. As indicated before, this idea of truthfulness of nature, which I believe can be discerned in Bacon, derives from the Greeks, for it is part of the classical opposition between nature and human convention, which, according to Plato, is due to Pindar, which may be discerned in Parmenides, and which is identified by him and by some sophists, for example, by Hippias, and partly also by Plato himself, with the opposition between divine truth and human error, or even falsehood. After Bacon, and under his influence, the idea that nature is divine and truthful, and that all error or falsehood is due to the deceitfulness of our own human conventions, continued to play a major role, not only in the history of philosophy, of science and of politics, but also in that of the visual arts. This may be seen, for example, from Constable's most interesting theories on nature, veracity, prejudice and convention, quoted in E.H. Gombrich's Art and Illusion. It has also played a role in the history of literature and even in that of music, end quote. And that's the end of part 11. We're on to part 12. But before we go to part 12, let's just linger over that section there that Popper has talked about on the artist Constable, John Constable, who is a British artist, visual artist. And he had some theories on, as Popper says there, nature, veracity, prejudice and invention, quoted in E.H. Gombrich's book, Art and Illusion, 
which is well out of copyright. And so I was able to get a PDF of that particular book and go to the section where Constable actually talks about this stuff to see what the big deal is that Popper was making of this. It seems to me that perhaps this E.H. Gombrich and Popper might have been friends. I don't know. I haven't gone into the details of their relationship, but I say that because Gombrich quotes Popper partway through the book. And so let me just read what uh, this fellow E.H. Gombrich, who was an Austrian art historian. Now, this is a really really a turn up for the books when it comes to talk cast. I often don't talk about art because it's well outside my area of expertise, so to speak. So I'm uncomfortable swimming in these waters, but I'm happy to go to the sources that Popper there quotes and to say what they have to say. And as I say, this E.H. Gombrich, this art historian, quotes Popper. It's rather interesting. And what he says, this is I'm reading from page 282 of that book that Popper has mentioned there, Art and Illusion. And Gombrich writes, quote, This inductivist ideal of pure observation has proved a mirage in science no less than in art. The very idea that it should be possible to observe without expectation, that you can make your mind an innocent blank on which nature will record its secrets, has come in for strong criticism. Every observation, as Karl Popper has stressed, is a result of a question we ask nature. And every question implies a tentative hypothesis. We look for something because our hypothesis makes us expect certain results. Let us see if they follow. If not, we must revise our hypothesis and try again to test it against observation as rigorously as we can. We do that by trying to disprove it. And the hypothesis that survives that winnowing process is the one we feel entitled to hold pro tempore, end quote. Well, this is refreshing. <laughs> this is refreshing from someone outside of philosophy, outside of science, in the area of the arts. This is brilliant. Now, there's a whole section there prior to this, by the way, where he talks about induction, and he goes on further to talk more about the philosophy, but that will distract me from my reading of Popper's actual work here today. But just to say, well, there appears to have been a school that existed at some point <laughs> where the artists... We're very much in a deep philosophical tradition of rationalism rather than what we see today. And what we see today is, of course, relativist notions, this undermining of what is beautiful and what is good and what is rational and what is reasonable and so on and so forth, turning art into a political movement of some kind. But this has not always been the case. Indeed, there appears to have been certainly art historians who are deeply familiar with critical rationalism. That's phenomenal. That's a really interesting part of history, I would say. But as I say, I'm not expert in the field. No doubt there are artists listening to this, perhaps, who might very well think, oh, no, there are people today, there are academics and intellectuals today heavily engaged in the artistic world who are familiar with Popper, who do rely upon rationalist means of trying to make better art and to understand the art that's gone before from a more rational perspective rather than looking at it through a political lens, let's say. What does this John Constable go on to say about nature, veracity, prejudice and convention, which Popper was so impressed by in this book? Well, let's have a look for that. Throughout the book, Gombrich is speaking of Constable, John Constable the artist, the, the painter, as engaging in scientific experiments. That, that's what Constable talked about when he was talking about painting. He was saying that what he was doing was akin to a scientific experiment. In other words trying to come to some deeper understanding of reality out there. He's trying to 
test the painting against reality. It doesn't mean that he's trying to get to a perfect representation. Indeed, he says later on, being quoted, that he can't actually do this. He can only kind of get morsels of reality in a way by painting some scene, some landscape, then he can tell you something of the truth about what's going on there without ever being able to capture the whole truth. So this is a very interesting Papirian way of looking at something like visual arts. Constable appears to be drawing parallels between what a scientist is doing and what an artist is doing, an artist like himself is doing. He's basically saying that, well, the scientist has to choose what to observe, what to experiment on what to explain, what part of reality. You can't take the whole thing all at once. You have to narrow down and focus on a specific thing. And then the science will tell you about that specific thing. So too with the artist. You can't just paint a landscape. That's not really what you're doing. Constable is saying you can concentrate on particular things and try and bring them into stark relief, so to speak. Either you're going to concentrate on the light and or shadow, you're going to concentrate on the colour, but you're going to represent something. It's generally not photorealism that you're striving for, although some artists do in fact do that, of course. But then you may as well just have the photo. And Constable, in the book, he's being quoted as reflecting on why he should focus on one thing rather than another. Having admitted the necessity of focusing on one thing rather than another, why? Why focus on one thing rather than another? Like, why is it that Constable chooses to paint the kind of paintings that he does? He, he paints particular kinds of landscapes. Well, what he says is, quote, The sound of water escaping from mill dams, etc. Willows, old rotten planks, slimy posts and brickwork. I love such things. I shall never cease to paint such places. Painting is with me but another word for feeling, and I associate my careless boyhood with all that lies on the banks of the Stour, these scenes make me a painter, end quote. So he's saying it's just his preference that is driving him to paint particular things. And other people have different preferences. Other artists paint different things in the same way that scientists are drawn towards particular problems. And they're going to tell you about the solutions they've found to those particular problems. But it never gives you all of reality. It doesn't solve the question of what is reality? What is the final ultimate answer to this question? Because any final ultimate answer is going to draw in content from other areas beyond the narrowly focused area that, or problem that one was initially focused upon. What Gombrich says later on about uh, Constable is that, quote, the truth Constable was after, he has often explained, quote, lights, dews, breezes, blooms and freshness not one of which has yet been perfected by any painter in the world, end quote. It was for their sake that he looked upon other men's paintings as things to be avoided, for their sake that he looked upon his own as experiments, end quote. So what's he saying there? Well, he's saying Constable was really interested in those things, lights, dews, breezes, blooms and freshness. He was trying to capture those in his paintings in some way, to represent that, to try and evoke those particular things in his paintings. He had to pick something to focus on. He focused on those and he was never going to get there perfectly. Rather, he was perfecting, striving for an ever better, more accurate representation of those things. And in the same way, this is what science does and what the scientist does, to get to an ever better, closer representation of reality without getting to reality itself.
just a representation of, a model of. Of course, we would say there's a difference here between art and science. One is doing the explaining. One is producing an image. These are not precisely the same thing. One has a cause and effect relationship implied in the explanation in some way, shape or form, an account of what is going on and why. Whereas the art might not tell you why what is represented in the image appears to be exactly that way. It's just saying, here is the thing, without saying why it would appear that way. Okay, so that's Constable being quoted in E.H.S. Gombrich's Art and Illusion. A little left field turn for top cast right there. We're going to go on to part 12 now of On the Sources of Knowledge and of Ignorance. And Popper goes on to say, quote, can the strange view that the truth of a statement may be decided upon by inquiring into its sources, that is to say its origin, be explained as due to some logical mistake which might be cleared up? Or can we do no better than explain it in terms of religious beliefs or in psychological terms, referring perhaps to parental authority? I believe that it is indeed possible to discern here a logical mistake, which is connected with the close analogy between the meaning of our words or terms or concepts and the truth of our statements or propositions, end quote. I think Popper's being a little bit loose here. It'd be interesting to be able to interrogate him on that point. He said the truth of our statements or propositions as if they're interchangeable. But as David Deutsch has observed, we cannot utter propositions. A proposition is a feature of logic. It's a logical thing represented usually by a variable, you know, the proposition P. But we can't actually say what P is, just that P represents some abstract proposition with a definite truth value. A proposition can be true or false, or perhaps undecidable, but anyway, it has a specific truth value whether or not we can know it or not. Statements are the things that we say. We say, the leaves are green, there's a statement. But it, precisely speaking, doesn't have a truth value. It has an approxi it's an approximation to a proposition, which does have a truth value. Truth and falsity are properties of propositions. That's the domain of logic and mathematics. And we can talk in the abstract about the truth and falsity of these particular things. But when it comes to making statements about the real world, what we have are approximations, which are not identically true or identically false. We have an explanation that either a thing is the case or a thing is not the case, but we can't get to the final truth of something or other. Okay, so statements, properly considered, are approximations to propositions. And these two terms, if we're doing careful philosophy, should not be easily interchanged. That quibble aside, let's get going. Popper goes on to say, quote, It is easy to see that the meaning of our words does have some connection with their history or their origin. A word is, logically considered, a conventional sign. Psychologically considered, it is a sign whose meaning is established by usage or custom or association. Logically considered, its meaning is indeed established by an initial decision, something like a primary definition or convention, a kind of original social contract. And psychologically considered, its meaning was established when we originally learned to use it. Logically considered, its meaning is indeed established by an initial decision, something like a primary definition or convention, a kind of original social contract. And psychologically considered, its meaning was established when we originally learned to use it when we first formed our linguistic habits and associations. Thus, there is a point in the complaint of the schoolboy about the unnecessary artificiality of French in which pain means bread, while in English he feels it is so much more natural and straightforward in calling pain, pain, and bread, bread. 
He may understand the conventionality of the usage perfectly well, but he gives expression to the feeling that there is no reason why the original conventions, original for him, should not be binding. So his mistake may consist merely in forgetting that there can be several equally binding original conventions, but who has not made implicitly the same mistake? Most of us have caught ourselves in a feeling of surprise when we find that in France, even little children speak French fluently. <laughs> of course, we smile about our own naivety, but we do not smile about the policeman who discovers that the real name of the man called Samuel Jones was John Smith, though he is no doubt a last vestige of the magical belief that we gain power over a man or a god by gaining knowledge of his real name. End quote. <laughs> I had precisely the same experience on my first visit to Korea, trying to learn Korean terribly here in Australia for, well, <laughs> months to years and making very little progress and actually going to Korea for the first time. And I remember saying to my partner as we're wandering around the streets of Seoul, it's absolutely astonishing how these toddlers speak Korean so well. They're brilliant, aren't they? <laughs> it is, it is kind of, it does take you aback when you're in a country, especially a place where you've tried so hard to learn the language. And then these little children are wandering around speaking it for all the world fluently. And of course they are, of course they are. But it's still surprising. Now, at this point, of course, in the text of the lecture, Popper is again focusing on linguistic analysis because his contemporaries were. And so he's responding to this other movement in philosophy. So when talking about the sources of knowledge and of ignorance, because so many others are focused on the fact that both knowledge and ignorance come down in some way to our use of language, and that language, this is something called the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis as well, that your language the weak version of it says, well, it merely shapes the way in which you understand the world. The strong version says it determines, it determines fully the way in which you can possibly understand the world. You are restricted from understanding certain things by the language you speak, which I think is just complete and utter nonsense. It's bogus that if there's something you don't understand, well, we routinely invent words. If there's a chemical out there in reality that has only just been discovered, it's not like we can't possibly understand that thing because we lack a word for it. No, we have a way in which to to, to represent it. We actually have conventions. We have a nomenclature system in chemistry for inventing new words. But even if we're not talking chemistry, any old concept that we come across that's new in reality, especially on social media, this happens all the time. You know, the very word meme has come to mean something else on social media. We invent new terms. Scientists do it all the time. And young people, of course, are very good at repurposing language and inventing new words in order to talk about the things that they're interested in. Language does not determine what it's possible to know. Full stop, period. Can it shape the way in which you understand reality? Well, insofar as anything, any way in which we communicate or sense the world shapes the way in which we understand reality, whatever that word shape might mean. But so long as the, the shaping is infinitely elastic in some way, you know, open always to revision, to being improved, to, to, to widening the window through which we can see reality, then I've got no problem with saying that language can shape reality. But, but as soon as there's a problem with language that's preventing us in some way from actually talking about reality, we just invent more words. We, 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 we have a more convoluted, let's say, sentence, which allows us to describe what's going on. That's not a problem. So Popper goes on. And he says, quote, Thus there is indeed a familiar, 
as well as a logically defensible sense in which the true or proper meaning of a term is its original meaning. So that if we understand it, we do so because we learned it correctly, from a true authority, from one who knew the language. This shows that the problem of the meaning of a word is indeed linked to the problem of the authoritative source or the origin of our usage. And it is different with the problem of the truth of a statement of fact or proposition. For anybody can make a factual mistake, even in matters on which he should be an authority, such as his own age or the colour of a thing which he has just this moment clearly and distinctly perceived. As to the origins, a statement may easily have been false when it was first made and first properly understood. A word, on the other hand, must have a proper meaning as soon as it was ever understood. If we thus reflect on the difference between the ways in which the meaning of words and the truth of statements is related to their origins, we are hardly tempted to think that the question of origin can have much bearing on the question of knowledge or of truth. There is, however, a deep analogy between meaning and truth, and there is a philosophical view, I have called it essentialism, which tries to link meaning and truth so closely that the temptation to treat both in the same way becomes almost irresistible. Okay, end quote. Now here I'll, here I'll have a, a, a quibble with terminology with Popper. Uh, Popper wants to say there that, that you are an authority, so to speak. You're an authoritative source on the things that you know about yourself. You're an authoritative source on, let's say, your age. I think we can just do away with this idea of authority and authoritative sources. All we need to say, following Popper's broader epistemology, is that you know your age, okay? You are the person who knows your age. You could be mistaken about it, by the way. You could, you're could still fallible. On the, <laughs> sometimes I have to think to myself, how old am I exactly now? Um, you get to that age where you kind of forget. <laughs> where you kind of forget specifically, precisely the year. I know approximately. <laughs> sometimes I forget exactly. I don't think I'm an authoritative source on anything. You know, you, you, you can just say that you know something that you have a good explanation of the thing. At least you think you do. <laughs> so I, I don't think I'm willing to go that far with Popper to say that there are certain places where there actually are authoritative sources on things. Whatever the case, Popper is now talking about truth and meaning and comparing these two things. And, well, he goes on to say, quote, In order to explain this briefly, we may first contemplate the table on page 20 noting the relationship between its two sides, end quote. Now, this table is something that appears in other places in Popper's work. In particular, it appears in his essay, Epistemology Without a Knowing Subject. So he likes to come back to this and to talk about the ways in which we can compare truth and meaning and theories and concepts. Now, for audio listeners, let me try to describe what the table is. Now, there's a left-hand side of the table and a right-hand side of the table that are perfectly symmetrical, and there are pairs of words. The pairs of words are concepts and theories, words and assertions, meaningful and true, meaning and truth, definitions and derivations, undefined concepts, primitive propositions. And so now I'll read the left-hand side of the table in a coherent way, having given you the pairs of words. The left-hand side of the table reads, quote, ideas, that is, designation or terms or concepts, may be formulated in words which may be meaningful, and their meaning may be reduced by way of definitions to that of undefined concepts. 
The attempt to establish rather than reduce these by means of their meaning leads to an infinite regress. So that's the left-hand side. Talking specifically about the philosophy that is about words, fixated on words. If you're fixated on the meanings of words, you're eventually going to get to the definitions of particular words, which themselves can't be further reduced. You're going to end up with undefined concepts. You're going to lead yourself into an infinite regress because any of these undefined concepts, if you go about trying to define them, it's only going to be in terms of other words that you've previously defined. So you're not really making any progress, reducing all of philosophy, all of understanding to just linguistic puzzles, trying to understand the true meaning of words. After all, your primitive words, the most basic words you can get down to, themselves need definition. And how do you define them? Oh, by recourse to other words which themselves will be defined, and so on and so forth. That's your infinite regress. Now, on the right-hand side of the table, which Popper cleaves towards more but doesn't ultimately endorse because, of course, it leads to an infinite regress as well. But what it says on the, the right-hand side is, quote, ideas, that is, statements or propositions or theories may be formulated in assertions which may be true, and their truth may be reduced by way of derivations to that of primitive propositions, the attempt to establish rather than reduce, by these means their truth leads to an infinite regress. And so what he's saying there is that we well, can have your theories, but don't insist your theories are true. <laughs> because if you're insisting your theories are true, then you're going to end up with an infinite regress of how you know this particular thing is true. And if all you say is, well, I know this thing is true because that thing is true that I already established the truth of. Well, how did you establish the truth of that thing? Well, because I established the truth of this thing. And so therefore you end up with an infinite regress of trying to establish things as true, which is a fool's errand. Let's read what Popper has to say about this. And he goes on to explain it, quote, How are the two sides of this table connected? If we look at the left side of the table, we find there is the word definitions. But a definition is a kind of statement or judgment or proposition, and therefore one of those things which stand on the right side of our table. This fact, incidentally, does not spoil the symmetry of the table, for derivations are also things that transcend the kind of things, statements, etc., which stand on the side where the word derivation occurs just as a definition is formulated by a special kind of sequence of words rather than by a word. So a derivation is formulated by a special kind of sequence of statements rather than by a statement. The fact that definitions, which occur on the left side of our table, are nevertheless statements, suggests that somehow they may form a link between the left and right side of the table. That they do this is indeed part of that philosophic doctrine to which I have given the name essentialism. According to essentialism, especially Aristotle's version of it, a definition is a statement of the inherent essence or nature of a thing. At the same time, it states the meaning of a word of the name that designates the essence. For example, Descartes and also Kant hold that the word body designates something that is essentially extended, end quote. This is why I have difficulty and people often come to me and they want simple definitions of things. And I have two problems with this. One, a definition is something that you're held to and then you're told all the ways in which the definition doesn't quite fit reality in some way, shape or form. Which means the definition is not final in their eyes anyway, and I tend to agree. So rather than have definitions, people can ask for explanations, always incomplete, and it provides some level of understanding of the concept without being definitive. Which brings me to the other problem with definitions. The definition, it's almost in the word, definitive, 
It's an end point. It, it, it prohibits kind of further exploration of this term. To define what an electron is, is you're saying, well, once and for all, this is the essence of an electron, hence essentialism. But we don't want a definition of electron. We don't want to be writing down a glossary in the back of our school books about, you know, learn off by heart what this electron is. No, we want to have some understanding of it. Okay, so an electron is a negatively charged particle. Right, so you have some understanding now of what that is. But there are other negatively charged particles out there in the universe as well. A muon can be negatively charged. So what's the difference? Well, an electron is a negatively charged particle that orbits the nucleus of many atoms. Okay, well, so there we go. We've got something closer then. But is that all that it is? Well, an electron happens to have fungible instances of itself. Well, what does that mean? Okay, so then we're led into this broader and broader understanding of things without ever actually defining specifically what an electron is, tidying it up, because that's not what philosophy and science is about. It's not about providing definitions. If you want a definition, you go to a dictionary. And even then, what you're getting is a statement which gives you a sort of first-pass approximation to the concept behind this particular word. But the danger with definitions, especially in philosophy, is that, well, it reduces philosophy to just competing claims about the meanings of words, which is a dead end. It doesn't lead to deeper understanding. It leads to quibbles over the possible meanings of words. We don't want that. We want to solve particular problems, come to a deeper understanding by creating ever better explanations, which involve words. Of course, it involves words, but it can repurpose words. It completely redefine, re-understand certain words. And as Popper says there, and I should just underline as well, the whole search for precise definitions leads to essentialism. It's saying that, well, there is this essence we can get to at the heart of this word representing a concept which tells you what the thing really truly is once and for all as if the word cat can be defined and therefore you can have this essence of cat this catness that all the cats have and that's what the definition gives you but that's misconceived we can have a better and better understanding of this entity that we call a cat over time we can learn new things we admit the possibility of learning new things in this way Whereas the linguistic analysis says there comes a point where your search for truth will come to an end when you finally, once and for all, defined the word perfectly and understood that definition perfectly. We deny that is possible. Popper goes on to say, quote, Moreover, Aristotle and all the other essentialists held that definitions are principles. That is to say, they yield primitive propositions. For example, all bodies are extended which cannot be derived from other propositions and which form the basis, or a part of the basis, of every demonstration. Thus, they form the basis of every science. See, for example, my open society, especially notes in chapter 11, which I might go to right now. It should be noted that this particular tenant, although an important part of the essentialist creed, is free of any reference to essences. This explains why it was accepted by some nominalistic opponents of essentialism, such as Hobbes or, say, Schlick, I think we now have the means at our disposal by which we can explain the logic of the view that questions of origin may decide questions of factual truth. For if origins can determine the true meaning of a term or word, then they can determine the true definition of an important idea, and therefore some at least of the basic principles, which are descriptions of the essences or natures of things, and which underlie our demonstrations and consequently our scientific knowledge. So it will then appear that there are authoritative sources of our knowledge. Yet we must realise that essentialism is mistaken in suggesting that definitions can add to our knowledge of facts 
although qua decisions about conventions they may be influenced by our knowledge of facts, and although they create instruments which may in their turn influence the formation of our theories, and thereby the evolution of our knowledge of facts. Once we see that definitions never give any factual knowledge about nature, or about the nature of things, we also see the break in the logical link between the problem of origin and that of factual truth, which some essentialist philosophers tried to forge." End quote. And so there, that's an excellent critique of the linguistic approach to philosophy. Popper is essentially saying, essentially, I say essentially, <laughs> Popper is talking about definitions as saying they can't give us new knowledge about the world. You're just defining a particular word, but you're not actually grappling with the nature of something, the problem that's out there in the world, the cause and effect relationship between certain entities in science that you might want to explain the workings of. You've got this problem, merely defining a word doesn't help you to solve that problem. To solve the problem, you want an account of what's going on and why. So any attempt to reduce this stuff to trying to understand language is misconceived. In the trivial case, we're going to point our telescopes at the sky and see things we can't explain. Merely coming up with a new word and defining the word and saying, well, this word defines that thing. For example, quasar. Quasar wasn't a word prior to someone observing the thing that was a quasi-stellar radio source. But defining this patch of light coming from a distant region of space that was observed by a telescope or seen through a telescope, rather, imaged and put on a photographic plate somewhere, simply saying that's a quasar does not add any knowledge of facts to the world, as Popper would say. Saying something is a quasar isn't telling us what it is. <laughs> These days we have explanatory theories about quasars. These days we know that the quasar is something like a black hole which is consuming whole stars, consuming whole stars, and as a consequence of that, the process which leads to the consumption of these stars is a, an accretion disk, uh, the, the, the matter from the star that is near the black hole is spiralling into the black hole. And this causes this happens at such a speed that the molecules and atoms out of which this gas is made are ripped apart, ionised. And the ionisation means that you've got an electric current effectively. The electric current, because this spinning, rotating disk of material, which is ionised, has an electric charge, creates a magnetic field. Moving charges create magnetic fields. And so the magnetic field causes great jets of material to shoot away from the black hole via this interesting process. This synchrotron radiation is produced, illuminating these big lobes of gas that can be seen from a long way off, namely a place like the Earth, many billions of light years away, as it turns out. This, in part, is what a quasar is. But none of that is a definition. That's an explanation. We can still say the definition of a quasar is something like, oh, it's a quasi-stellar radio source. That's what the word means. Uh, or a quasar is a highly luminous object in the distant parts of the universe. Okay, but that still doesn't tell us the reason why any of it's happening. Okay, so linguistic analysis, there's a poverty at the heart of linguistic analysis. It's not real philosophy. It's not real problem solving. It doesn't work in science. It doesn't work anywhere else, including philosophy. So I was going to go on to part 13, but I think I'll leave that for next time where Popper really resolves, resolves what it is about these historic accounts of how knowledge arose, including this misconceived view of linguistic analysis, and comes to what he thinks is the way in which you know what it is you know 
how you know you've got knowledge, for example, and where mistakes come from, where our ignorance comes from. But until then, bye-bye.